Here I go again Same old bars, same old friends It's just my place for security Place I call friends like you and me Here I go again Hello everybody, welcome back to the Patrick Lally Show podcast. We are recording live here at the Full Circle Book Co-op in beautiful downtown Sioux Falls, the best little city in America. The good people here at the Full Circle let us come in here and record this podcast each and every Tuesday night around 5.30 if you're out driving around and you want a place to hang out, see good books, talk to good people, and, and listen to a podcast get recorded, you need to stop by. Uh, we, uh, as, uh, as we came into the show, we were listening to our good friend Rich Show, the the uh, recently inducted into these, or nominated, or will be inducted, I should say. He has been announced as an inductee into the next class of the, or the South Dakota Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So we thank Rich for letting us use his tunes, and uh, they get stuck in my head and they never go away. Um, and uh, of course, our sponsor, Tuniza Islam, is our, is our guest. She's here. She probably doesn't know we have a sponsor. No, North, Northview Bait and Tackle. All right. Yeah, where you can get uh, uh, live bait, dead tackle, propane, propane accessories, U-Haul, self-storage, and high-end dog and cat food. That's Northview Bait and Tackle, just off Russell on North Kiwanis Avenue. Uh, and as I mentioned, I'm very happy tonight to have with us on the podcast, Tanisa Islam, who is the executive director of the South Dakota Voices for Peace and was a guest on the old, uh, the, the semi-beloved and short-lived radio program. <laughs> Tanisa, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me back. No problem. So, um, first of all, uh, you're the, the you're the executive director for the South Dakota Voices for Peace, but you come to this job because you are um, an immigration lawyer. Yes. And that, to me, is fascinating work. How did you, um, first of all, how did you end up uh, becoming an immigration lawyer, saying, you know what, I'm yeah. going to go deal with people who almost can't defend themselves and have no money. <laughs> well, I um, am a child of immigrants, and so those conversations were something I always grew up with. Born and raised in Michigan, but, you know, we always had conversations about, you know, someone's getting married, when can their wife come over here? Yeah. Or someone wants to go to school here, how are we going to get that to happen? Or how much money will it cost for someone to, can my grandfather come to my wedding? You right. know, can, how are we going to do that? What's that process? So it was those just are, constantly yeah, in the background. Yeah, it was just always there. Um, long story short, I always thought I was going to be an immigration lawyer through law school. Where I went to Hamlin University, which no longer exists. Oh, yeah. Got Hamlin and William Mitchell merged. That's right. We call it Billy Mitch. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but immigration court for North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota, it's a regional system, okay. is located in Fort Snelling, Minnesota. Got it. So all of the immigration lawyers for our region are in the Twin Cities. And so um, I did not have marketable language skills, such as... Hmong, Somali, or Spanish, so I was not hired anywhere as an oh, immigration wow. attorney, which was the silver lining because um, I started doing employment discrimination work and working with Muslim communities and religious accommodations at the workplace and so on. So did civil rights work, worked for the city of Minneapolis as a complaint investigator and then also a civil rights director for um, a civil rights organization called CARE Minnesota. 
So then we moved to South Dakota. Let's go back to that experience yeah. for just a second. Yeah. Because I, I know that moving to South Dakota was probably <laughs> the, the highlight, right, <laughs> of getting out of the Twin Cities. But um, the uh, but that had to be fascinating work. Oh, absolutely. Um, it was great because my boss at the Civil Rights Department for the city of Minneapolis was 100% supportive of me building the civil rights program for this new organization. So it was a bunch of you know, 20 to 30 something passionate young Muslims in the community that wanted to start doing more advocacy. Um, and I was really one of the only Muslim lawyers in the state that wanted to do this work. So I worked full time to get my paycheck and then I volunteered full time too. Oh my gosh. Uh, so I was working about 80 hours a week, you know, no kids, newly married, so mm -hmm. it worked. Um, but that actually, 2008 was the first time that um, Somali men and boys were going back to Somalia to fight um, with Al-Shabaab. Yep. And so there was a swarm of civil rights issues in the Muslim community at that time, and we were the go-to organization for the community. So I learned a lot of rapid response work during that time, which has really benefited me now in the mm -hmm. work that we do here. Do you think that, um, because the, that issue with the Somali uh, men and boys going back, mm -hmm became a big deal oh, yeah, nationwide. Uh, people probably kind of forgotten about it, but sure. it was a big deal. But it did it change the attitude of people in Twin Cities toward the Somali community? And even in like places like St. Cloud, where they've got yeah. an entrenched issue of, of yeah, pushback. Same, yeah, St. Cloud is, um, unfortunately, uh, I would say it's a mirror of Aberdeen. Uh, Right? Oh, yeah. Um, and the kind of rhetoric and the fear mongering that we see here in Aberdeen is similar to what's happening in, in St. Cloud. Actually, one of my proudest moments as a civil rights director for CARE Minnesota was we filed the first um, complaint of discrimination against the St. Cloud Public School District um, because they were not following policies and procedures for student complaints of discrimination. So we filed that with the Department of Education, and to my understanding is that they're still under federally mediated agreements. Wow. So we started that ball rolling. Um, and really it's it was to show our community that when you understand the process and the procedure and how to, how to use the laws for good, mm -hmm. right? Yep, yep. I mean, the biggest problem we have, and this is an overgeneralization, is that our communities do not understand the laws and how to access those laws, and how, how to file complaints, and what does that really mean, right? So uh, um, an organization like Care Minnesota really honed in on the Muslim community and religious accommodation, religious discrimination, and continues to do that work today. So, That's interesting. Yeah. So you were there how long? 2008 to 2012, pretty much till we moved here in 2012. Yeah. Were you, uh, you said you were like working 80 hours a week and doing crazy stuff. Were you ready for a change I by was, then? Yeah, yeah, I was, honestly, it was a clean break for me. I had just, we had just had our first child. Um, oh, wow. So when we moved here to South Dakota, he was one. So I was like, perfect, no one knows me here. I'm just gonna not tell anyone what I did. <laughs> it was really strange. It was like this huge firewall between Minnesota and South Dakota. 
I mean, now I've started, and now I know contacts in the Twin Cities that know folks here. Mm -hmm. But when I first moved here, like no one knew a lawyer in South Dakota. It was really strange. It is weird how state boundaries are like cultural boundaries. Yeah, yeah. You know, I suppose really for lawyers because you yeah. do, yeah. you practice in this state or yeah. you practice in this state. Yep. And you can be, you know, it too, but Minneapolis is a long ways away. It is. And why would any of those guys come down here, right? <laughs> Well, there's some now. And yeah, there are. They're showing up every day. Yeah. Can't beat them back. <laughs> but, you know, what's the nature of, and, and I found this in other states as well, like almost all the lawyers here went to USD. Yep, absolutely. All the lawyers in Des Moines went to Iowa. Yep. All the lawyers in Minnesota. Minneapolis has got bigger community, but a lot of them went to the University of Minnesota. Yeah. So it's a kind of a, it's, it's a little bit strange, that profession. It is very strange. I mean, honestly, Minnesota had, had, when I was there, had four law schools. That's true. Now they're down to three. But when I moved here, um, gosh, don't quote me on the statistic, no. but at least 80% <laughs> of South Dakota lawyers went to USD. Mm -hmm. And that was a really interesting culture to come into. Yep. Right? First of all, I didn't know a soul yep. in South Dakota. And now I'm in a community where everyone went to school together. Yeah, that's right. right. Take so, a big high school. Yeah. So the first thing I did was try to find a Hamlin alum in the area and knock on their doors and see. Yeah, did you find some? <sighs> a couple. <laughs> yeah, a couple. Uh, but and, not recent grads. Yeah. And so you um, so you ended up here in 2012, mm -hmm. right? Um, and you've got a new baby. Yeah. And uh, haven't been married that long, right? Um, uh, that had to be a bit of a cultural shock. Absolutely, it was. It was strange because I was professionally, I was at my peak when I was in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. I mean, the work that I loved, I was doing it eighty hours a week. Mm -hmm. Right, I was in the media. I was educating people. We were doing trainings. We were representing people. I mean, it was just on fire mm -hmm. for about five years. So um, having a baby kind of calms you down. Can't work 80 <laughs> hours a week anymore, at least not right away. No. Um, but it was a good shift. But it all kind of happened together, and that was, that was difficult, just mm -hmm. not having a support system here, mm -hmm. not, knowing, not even knowing who could babysit our kid if we wanted oh, to go Oh, that had to be out. terrible. Yeah, I mean, you don't know who to trust, who not to trust, all those kinds of things. So, um, and it was very different here when we moved. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a small town very similar to Sioux Falls in feel and size in mid-Michigan, Bay City, um, but just ethnically so homogenous here, mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't fit into that. And um, yeah, it was very conservative politically, which I've never lived in a very conservative state. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I grew up, Michigan was blue. Mm -hmm. You know, I went to grad school in Vermont. <laughs> yeah. I, I worked in Connecticut. I worked in New York City. I worked, went to law school in Minnesota. I did have a stint in Indianapolis. Ah, uh, well, there you which go. Which was close, but, <laughs> but still racially very diverse. Yeah. So I'll, it was very different when, when we moved here. And so how was that, um, as you got here and started to acclimate, how did all that like shape what you wanted to do here? Yeah, well, I realized I needed to recreate myself here. Right, and so I took that as an opportunity. Um, a, a former colleague of mine encouraged me to apply for the Bush Leadership Fellowship, 
So I did that. My project was looking at access to legal services for immigrant communities. I mean, I've always worked with immigrant communities, right. just not as an immigration lawyer. Right. I was a civil rights lawyer. I was an advocate. I did after-school programming. Like I have always worked with immigrant communities in some capacity. So that made sense for you to yeah. explore. And I always wanted to do immigration law. I was just not marketable in the Twin Cities. Right. So when I got here, I was like, oh, there's only five immigration attorneys right. in the entire state. Yep. Right? Um, maybe this is my time to see if I can do that again. And the only reason I started, well, not the only, but the reason I was able to start my private practice here um, in 2013 is because I had such a strong network of immigration attorneys in the Twin Cities. Mm -hmm. And so they end up getting all the clients from South Dakota because sure. there's not enough lawyers here. I mean, there's some great lawyers in town, but we're all overworked. Right. right? So you got referrals, basically. Yeah. And I was able to lean on them to help me through those first couple years. And I got my Bush Fellowship at the same time. So I was assessing the legal access needs for immigrant communities once I got my fellowship through my practice. Wow. So I was literally doing, I was a pro bono law firm. <laughs> but you were getting my data. Yeah. Yeah, I was getting, and it was very, my hypothesis was true. Um, There's that no access. Just really basic services were not being met for immigrant communities. So I honestly, I just started um, doing citizenship cases for elderly refugees. Wow. Uh, who had come here for whatever circumstances were abandoned by their families once they got here. And so no one helped them, you know, to navigate the system. Um, and so, Word travels pretty fast in our communities if there's free anything, free <laughs> services. So I literally never had to market anything, um, and I just started seeing different kind of cases come to my door. What, uh, as you were doing that process, what did you, what surprised you the most? I mean, you'd worked with immigrant communities, you'd worked with lots of different people, you've heard all the stories, yeah. right? But working um, in this community, what was it that you, right away we're like, well, I, I did not know that. Yeah, um, it's hard to pinpoint the one thing, but I think just how basic the services that were needed were not being met. Such as? Citizenship cases. Okay. Um, they had no idea where to go or what to do. Yeah, right? no information, you know, nobody knew where to go or or the lack of information, I think, was very resounding once I first started this work here. I mean, if you think about it, when I say immigration services, who do you think of? Uh, Hispanics, primarily. Yeah. And what do you think of as an organization that, that helps immigrants in our community? Um, the Multicultural Center. Multicultural Center or Lutheran Social Services. Yep, LSS, right? exactly. So everyone, everyone points to LSS. And they, they do God's work over there, for sure. But they're down to one immigration staff attorney. Um, and the refugee resettlement numbers have been slashed yep. by this administration, which right. impacts services, yep. which people don't make yep. that connection. I mean, the most, well, there's a lot of troubling things that are going on right now from this administration on a policy level. However, when, this, when President Trump announced that he, and he has the discretion, the president has the discretion to cap the refugee resettlement mm -hmm. number every fiscal year. Mm -hmm. So just very recently he said he was going to drop it to 10,000. 10,000 refugees are allowed to come into our country the next fiscal year. That's not very many. 
Uh, there's 65 million displaced people in our world, yep. right? At the height of the Obama administration, President Obama's cap was 130,000. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, people love to say, oh, well, LSS is here, they'll take care of it. Or they're taking care of it, and it's in, you know, there, there's so much work that needs to be done in so many different realms. And I mean, again, don't quote me on a number, but the refugee population, when you look at the immigrant population as a whole, is a very minuscule in right. Sioux Falls. Just people, Sioux Falls. People just mix all that up. Yeah, they don't understand the nuances. I mean, we have our our doctors and mm -hmm. PhD folks and arrows and mm -hmm. scientists. Those guys are all immigrants mm -hmm. and gals. Mm -hmm. um, then we have refugees. Then we have immigrants that are just coming here. Yeah, Maybe think, they came to Minnesota first and then yeah. they're moving here. I mean, there's no restriction on movement once no. you're actually here. Which is why we have Somali community, Ethiopian community, mm -hmm. uh, Eritrean communities. Um, but we also have refugee communities and I'm thinking about, um, oh Bosnian? gosh. Well, the Bosnian, yes, yeah. which people don't see yeah. because they're white. Yeah. You know, and it's a very strange phenomenon. The Eastern European immigrants mm -hmm. probably face all their own challenges. That's what I'm saying. Sure. But they seem to, you know, because they just blend in, right? Well, that is what for me, a visual assimilation is, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, you just blend in. It's a hundred percent true. Yeah. Um, and we've got all kinds of people here now. Who? Yeah. What, what community? Was there a community that you weren't expecting to find? Like? Uh, no, actually, I was. You know, I'm. I'm. Uh, very comfortable with and most acclimated to working with Somali refugee communities mm -hmm. because of my experience in Minneapolis. So, um, but it's it's no different when they're from Eritrea or Ethiopia right. or, or wherever. Um, I gosh darn it, I can't think of the uh, their the sub community you're thinking about. Right, um, it's a it's an Asian. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bhutanese. Bhutanese. Yeah. Gosh, thank you. Yeah. The Bhutanese the community, which is fascinating. And they're the largest refugee population in in the state. Really? Yeah, but no one. Hardly. I mean, I if you live or work downtown for a while, and yeah. I, I now that I think about it, I don't know that I've seen them. You would yeah. see Bhutanese people yeah. going to LSS yep. or wherever to just. Get, English and classes, it was fascinating. Education. It yeah. was it was awesome. I mean, I've worked in downtown since I moved here, and when LSS moved into that building on Main Street, mm -hmm. it was great. It added such a richness to just the visual diversity yeah, of our city, right? I and I've always really underestimated, until I moved here, the importance of just seeing other people that right. look different. You know, and I, here's a, a theory that I have, based on nothing, <laughs> um, is that there's a wide swath, not just obviously the state of South Dakota, take that out of it, just the metro, right? Mm. That there's a lot of people living in the metro who don't realize who lives here. Yeah. That for whatever reason, if they go downtown, they don't go at the right times or whatever, yeah. they don't see people. Yeah. And I don't know why that is, because I see people of all different kinds and creeds and colors and everything else all the time. Yeah. And I don't know how you cannot see that. You know, even just in the last seven years that I've been here, mm -hmm. I, I feel just that visual diversity is increasing 
because when I first moved here, I assessed diversity and inclusion, which mm -hmm. is more important for me mm -hmm. when we're looking at communities. That's a good word. I mean, it, how inclusive are our communities? Yes. I, I personally have my own gauge, and I think, well, who is at my grocery store mm -hmm. and my gas station and walking around around my bike trail mm -hmm. that I am, right? Um, and it became instantaneously clear to me how segregated the city is. 100%. Right? But I'm starting to see that inclusion more. And again, this is my hypothesis. Mm -hmm. I think that really relates to the statistics that we're seeing out of the public school district mm -hmm. and that it's getting ethnically and racially more diverse as we get younger. So oh, I think what's happening is those high school high schoolers, when I was here, they were like eighth grade, right? Right. So they're graduating now, mm -hmm. right? And they're working at Hy-Vee, mm -hmm. they're working at Staples, they're working at McDonald's. They're doing right? all the things right. that Right, so we're starting yeah. to see them see this richness of racial and ethnic diversity in Sioux Falls. Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, if you're not paying attention to that, right? Mm -hmm. then you may not see that. And if you're, I don't know, I think there's definitely still those, the houses on the hills or whatever you want to call them that maybe they're only on the west side of town. They're right. not coming to downtown, you know, and during you just the day. don't have that connection. You know, I will yeah. say this, and uh, you and I live generally in the same part of town. Mm -hmm. um, it's surprising I won't say it's not. it's a very white place to live. Oh yeah. But <laughs> I think people would be surprised at how much inclusion there is. I mean, it's a middle class, yeah. upper middle class neighborhood. So your your the, the people that live there who are non-white are professional people who yep. have moved here to take jobs in healthcare, education, finance. Yep. And I think that's a very good thing because it's just more different kinds of people in more and different kinds of settings for people to see. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And when Tanisa Islam is out doing her, uh, her, her you know, nightly run. To Trying get ready. to run that right. three miles. <laughs> right. So you're just part of the community. Yeah. You're walking your dog or no, whatever absolutely. it is. Right? Absolutely. And, you know, my neighbors, I'm, I'm not trying I have I have neighbors of color on both sides. Great. You know, and they're it, we're just all just a neighborhood. Yeah, and we actually we call that something at South Dakota Voices for Peace. So Which we call what? that putting a face to the name. So I mean, the reason we started one of the ways we do education in the community is through our digital storytelling. Mm -hmm. So we have storytellers who are from our impacted communities and those folks in our mission are Muslims, immigrants, and refugees in South Dakota. So I was doing a presentation out in Rapid City talking about Islamophobia, what it is, mm -hmm. why it's here, how it's, an, it's a systemic thing. There's money being pumped into it. There's a goal to dehumanize people. Mm -hmm. This is an effort. Um, so this gentleman was in the front row listening the whole time really attentively. And then at the end of it, he said, you know, I've heard everything you've said, and I don't believe you. I think Muslims want to take over our country mm -hmm. and our constitution, and I'm scared. So I just leaned in a little bit, and I said, sir, are you scared of me? I'm a Muslim, <laughs> yeah. right? I'm four foot 11. I'm a Muslim. I'm an attorney. Are you scared of me? And he said, well, no, I'm not scared of you. Like, why would I be scared of you, right? So in that moment, I realized 
it's scary when you don't see people like me mm-hmm. walking around or having a conversation or going for a run or cutting my lawn just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. It's easy to be um, feed into the fear mongering because that's all you see. Yep. If that's what you're getting from your news, from your neighbor, from your pastor, yeah. from your legislator, yo. then I mean, from if, our let's from yeah. our legislature exactly. Yeah. But that's a whole different topic. The, uh, when your vision is, you know, a bunch of guys riding around in the back of a Toyota pickup with the ISIS flag, I mean, you know, you're going to be scared, right? Absolutely. That's scary. And it took me a, in that moment, I realized how real the fear is, mm-hmm. right? In my family and how I was raised, we were, I mean, I was always the only one, right? When people ask me about intercultural education or interactions or interfaith interactions, that is who I am. And I was always the only Muslim. I was the only uh, right, daughter up- of immigrants. I'm the only brown-skinned person in my school and yep. my wherever. So for me, that's daily life. Right? It's interesting because I think when you talk about being from Michigan, mm-hmm. right, and um, I, I think people probably immediately assume you're from the Detroit area. Probably. Which has a yeah. large... Uh, there's a lot of large, uh, yeah. uh, diverse communities. Absolutely. A lot large uh, Muslim community. Mm-hmm. But you grew up in Bay City, Michigan. Yeah. Yep. That's not no. Detroit. Three hours north. <laughs> yeah, that had to be that had to be quite something different experience. I never. I mean, I didn't know anything else. Right. Honestly, I did not know. Um, the way I describe it is, mm-hmm. I didn't know I was holding my breath mm-hmm. my entire life until I started working at the city of Minneapolis. Because mm-hmm. in the Civil Rights Department, we were all um, attorneys of color or of some minority backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And for the first time, I didn't have to explain X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. or always felt like people were looking at me strange. And you know, it's, it's this feeling you have. But I didn't realize that I, I felt that way until I was in an environment where I was accepted for who I wholly am, yeah. right? It all prepared you. To for be here, here, for this amazing the best place, little, the best little city in America, <laughs> which you know, there's some. It's, just, it's a, it's a double entendre, right? <laughs> um, we're going to take a very short break, and we're going to come back and talk more with Tanisa Islam. She is executive director of the South Dakota Voices for Peace, and we are actually going to talk more about the organization and what you got coming up and what you guys have been doing because I think it's fascinating. Uh, you're going to listen to just a little bit of my friend Rich Show play some music here. Uh, and I should mention that we are, of course, sponsored by Northview Bait and Tackle, uh, where you're home for live bait, dead tackle, uh, propane, propane accessories, self-storage, U-Haul, and high-end dog and cat food. That's Northview Bait and Tackle on North Qantas Avenue, just off Russell. We will be right back with more from Tanisa Isla.
And we're back on the Patrick Lally Show podcast, and we continue our conversation here with Tanisa Islam. She's executive director of the South Dakota Voices for Peace, and uh, we've been chatting about how you ended up here. I, a four foot eleven uh, woman, Muslim lawyer from Bay City, Michigan, um, educated in the Twin Cities at Hamlin University Law. Uh, uh, it's not a. It's not the traditional path <laughs> to a, a lawyer job in, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Diversifying what it means to be South Dakotan. That, there you go. <laughs> so let's talk about South Dakota Voices yeah. for Peace, though, because uh, we did your background on immigration, but let's talk about the group then. At some point, you decided we need something yeah. else other than just a law firm. Yeah, right? absolutely. So how did that conversation start? So this is confusing because we have so many names and we're working on that branding. <laughs> um, but we have two entities. We have South Dakota Voices for Justice, mm. which is our C4 lobbying arm. Got it. And then our sister organization, South Dakota Voices for Peace. We do our education, legal services, advocacy, and rapid response work through C3. And that's because of IRS regulations right. and the whole night. You can't lobby as right. it's... You're not supposed to. Right. So we're you, staying true to that. Got it. Well, good. You don't yeah. want to get in trouble. Really don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> um, so 2017 had some friends and peer call me who are lobbyists and said, hey, we're starting to see some really ugly anti-immigrant, refugee, and anti-Muslim bills and resolutions. And so at that point, remember, no one knew who I really was, mm -hmm. right? Right. So, well, now I couldn't just say, well, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> so I put that hat back on, and I did what I know to do, which is organize communities. So I've been told for the first time um, the legislators had never seen so many people of color and who are Muslims and pure in I January. That. Like, well, and there was and there wasn't a busload, as some may tell you. There was busloads and busloads of us. There was maybe two cars, so like <laughs> eight of us. Eight of us went up there to pier. That's enough. That that put, no, that's absolutely. a tipping point in pier. I mean, remember what I said about underestimating the power of visual diversity. Right. Right. So we went there um, and we testified against these bills. Um, the first one was to end the refugee resettlement program, which impacted Lutheran Social Services mm -hmm. directly. Mm -hmm. We said, hey, how can we help you? You're the lead. We're here to help in whatever way. So we testified. Then there were all these resolutions that wanted to declare Islam as a religion of terror, that yeah. all Muslims are terrorists, like the whole nine yards. I mean, if you actually want to go back and listen to the audio of how horrific um, their evidence was of why we should not be a religion or why we should be dehumanized, it's, it's pretty... Well, and there's... Uh, it's incredible how fast I forget people's names. Um, not Stace Nelson, the other guy. Uh, Neil Tapio. Neil Tapio. Um, so now, Neil purports to be quite the scholar of the Quran. Um, yeah, I heard he carries one around in his does. briefcase. And he's got it all highlighted. It's a great conversation. To his meetings. So um, <laughs> he's no longer in the legislature, but where was it? Was that all because of Neil Tapio? I mean, where there's, did it come from? there's definitely what we like to call a group of Islamophobes up in Pierre that are dwindling. Um, Stace Nelson just announced he was retiring as well. So we're 
excited to see that. I mean, Islamophobia, the definition of Islamophobia is really creating fear about immigrants, refugees, and Muslims because statistically the targets of hate crimes, mm -hmm. Islamophobic hate crimes, are more often than not Muslim. Yeah. They're just brown skin, maybe wear a turban. Well, that's a whole different religion that seeks. Right. Right. So that's what Islamophobia means. So since To you, it means it's broader than yeah, just... it's all of us. Got it. That Got it. Are brown. I mean, if you want to be quite crass about it. So um, so in our legislature, since 2017 till 2019, mm -hmm. we've defeated 10 out of the 12 such bills and resolutions. So we, the first year, it was really Islamophobia. Um, the second and third year became much more anti-undocumented people mm -hmm. and really honing in on our Hispanic community and so on. So we advocate for all of our immigrant communities, if you will. Which is rather interesting because <clears throat> the thing about the Hispanic community is that there are very powerful elements in the state of South Dakota who want the Hispanic community and who want the yeah. immigrants, Absolutely. specifically the agricultural sector. Yeah. Absolutely. Right? The dairy sector. Sure. And so do you find that sometimes you have an ally in places that you aren't We're working on it. In? We're working on it. Yeah, I mean, I think our success has been so great is because we have created those coalitions. Mm -hmm. You know, we've there's only been a couple of times where we were front and center and advocating against X bill or Y resolution. But more often than not, it's been law enforcement because a lot of the bills are telling law enforcement what they can or mm. cannot do, and nobody likes to be told what they can and cannot no, do. No, particularly when you tie somebody's hands. Right. And, and I mean, there was the one bill we fought um, last year was forcing local law enforcement to work with ICE agents if they came to give immigration information over to them. Like the, like and if they didn't, they could be, um, it could go to court. I can't remember exactly what it said. But so when I, so the thing is law enforcement's not paying attention to that. They have, you know, their lobbyists paying attention to some other stuff that they're worried about. Right. But so then we come in, we have a good relationship with the law enforcement lobbyists and some key people in town. And they say, hey, have you seen this bill? This is how I'm reading it. Is that how you're reading it? Mm -hmm. They're like, yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> so then we work together to defeat those. I mean, similarly, there was a bill um, to deny access to higher education for undocumented students in the state of South Dakota, right? So, yeah. then, so then we work with the Board of Regents and they said they wanted to take it front and center. Great. So we're just making sure the right people are there in the yeah. room or on the phone to testify against the stuff. That's government relations, right? Absolutely. And before that, I've been told that it wasn't happening that way. You know, people weren't really paying attention to the bills we're paying attention to and then figuring out how it would actually impact our community if these things passed. And, and the stakeholders are much larger than what it appears just on the face of the bill. Right? So did we, there was, it seemed like there was a spike in yeah. that kind of yeah. Islamophobia I legislation. So. Yeah. Do you think that just because you guys showed up and said, are you kidding me yeah. with this? Probably, but also it's a national effort, right? Mm -hmm. So Act for America is the largest Islamophobic hate group in the United States. They're a grassroots organization. They have a, um, and Southern Poverty Law Center has deemed them a hate group. 
Um, they have an active chapter in Rapid City. Mm -hmm. um, Family Heritage Alliance, also my colleague calls it the trifecta of hate. They're anti-Muslim immigrant refugee, mm -hmm. they're anti-women's rights, and they're, an and they're homophobic, right? Mm -hmm. So all the bills that we see in the legislature, that isn't the craft of our legislators. They're cookie cutter bills that right. are getting passed around the country. Right, and South Dakota, we know, is a testing ground for this stuff so they can see what's going to stick and well, what won't. Well, because it's won. easy. Yeah, because people don't show up. Yeah. Who wants to drive to Pier in January? I mean, it's almost death-defying getting up there <laughs> to fight one of these bills, to yeah, be quite honest. I know, you turn off the interstate, you go, and you're like, oh! Oh, you missed the exit, yeah. and you got to go in a 30 miles to come all the way back. I mean, I've done that a couple times. <laughs> but... That is a long ways. If you miss <laughs> that exit, it if is you a miss long that, yeah. ways. So, I mean, the just thing... Just do what the farmer do. Just I, back that thing I up. I need to get one of those yeah, things exactly. that can do that. <laughs> uh, well, that's... and It, it is... It, it, what am I trying to say here? It's it's shocking to me to some sometimes how these pockets of people develop, Right. So Rapid City's not a small town, mm -mm. but at the same time, I, I don't know, it just seems to have more of that strain mm -hmm. of virulent hate. And I, that's, that's just straight up it's hate. hate. Thank you for saying that, You're because welcome. I've gotten a lot of criticism by different people for using that word, because it's so strong. And I said, I don't know how else to call it, what else to call this. The things that they say about When people, you dehumanize, right groups of people and say that their religion is not worthy of First Amendment protections because it's not really a religion. I mean... So, and if it's not hate, <clears throat> what is it? Exactly. Are you are you saying, oh, I, I don't hate people, so you're just stupid then. <laughs> that... No, and I think that gives people a pass, yeah. right? And so we, we are holding people accountable for their hate, and I think that's never happened in, in the fear of... Muslims, immigrants, and refugees. No one has called it hate like we have South mm -hmm. Dakota Voices for Peace and Justice, like we have in the media. Mm -hmm. And you know, the story of our, the positive trajectory of our work is really the story of inclusive South Dakotans, right? Mm -hmm. Because yes, we're, we led in that moment to take the two car loads of folks up to Pierre. Eight people can change the world. <laughs> but it takes at least three, two people to create a movement. Mm -hmm. And so we really, and when I say we, we have a board of directors, we have an advisory council, we now, we have grown from pro bono staff in 2017 to four full-time staff. That's amazing, I didn't day. know that. Yeah, I mean, that is the positive trajectory of our work. Where, where are you getting your money? Yeah, um, individual donors. Hmm. 40% uh, of our funds come from people in South Dakota who care about the work and believe in the work that we're doing. Mm -hmm. And then the other 60% come from grants, foundations, wow. funders, here, regionally, and nationally. And we just actually received the first JM Kaplan Innovation Prize, which is based out in New York City. Wow. We're the first organization in South Dakota to receive that You're prize. Well, congratulations. Thank you. It's a huge honor. What sort of coin are we talking about there? This is, <laughs> this is public record, billions right? Billions and billions. Uh, this, was, this pretty much solidifies your uh, retirement. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's my husband's joke. He's like, when are you going to get a job with the pension? <laughs> but this isn't going to cover it either. <laughs> but that's great news. Yeah. We, um, we, our award is 100 
$275,000 over three years, which goes towards staff salary mm-hmm. um, and then program services too. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, if you think just two years ago, we had a budget of zero. Mm-hmm. Everyone was pitching in to drive and stay in hotel rooms mm-hmm. and do all the things. So after legislative session 2017, we started tracking what we call Islamophobic speakers in our state. So there was this real spike in mm-hmm. speakers, actually. We've tracked over three dozen, so over 36 speakers on a national circuit that have come to South Dakota. And they end up in Aberdeen, right? So they tried to come to Sioux Falls. Yeah. And we were able to get those some of those key events canceled by private venues, so there mm-hmm. were no First Amendment issues. Right. Um, and so they haven't come to Sioux Falls since, at least that we know of. They were very open about advertising. And when I mm-hmm. say they, we've been tracking who they are. So now we know who the Islamophobic network in South well, Dakota is. Well, you don't is. go to places where you're, if you're, if you're that. Blatantly well, hateful. I, I'm going to overgeneralize whatever, right? Yeah. But if you are out there peddling hate. Yeah. And trying to build that idea of dehumanization and marginalization in a, in a pluralistic society, right. you don't go to the places right. where people don't want you, you go find the people that are open to the message, right? Absolutely. And that apparently is Aberdeen. Well, it's rural America in general, right? And so I had the honor of doing a TEDx Brookings talk back in 18, and my focus was Islamophobia in rural America mm-hmm. and why it makes sense. Again, going back to if you don't have at least one person in your community that's Muslim, an immigrant, or a refugee, who you would actually consider a neighbor, Mm -hmm. right? Um, then it's easy to believe all the things that are being said by these speakers. I mean, we know for a fact that it's being talked about at churches, um, by legislators, by news outlets, by media outlets, and then all these national speakers, you know, they come in with a book, they're mm-hmm. author tours. Yep. So it's not like they're like, yes, we're here to dehumanize Muslims, <laughs> right? Or when they whomever, sign right. up to go to the place that they're having the event in. We know who they are. This is my life's work. I know yep. who this circuit is. I mean, there's national reports on this kind of stuff and data on who this network is, right? The Islamophobic network. And so when we then, our role in the community is to educate other people who these folks are, what they're going to say. I mean, they're not shy about it they have their youtube videos and their blogs and whatever so we just send the links over and say is this what you want to support in our community you guys decide yeah right and so the interesting shift has been we've seen a lot less of those speakers come in 2019 but their strategy is changing too um and they're becoming smarter uh, to trigger First Amendment protections, they're now um, having their talks on university campuses. Yes, which is which led happened to... in Aberdeen for the first time last year. Wow! And so, hands are tied. Fine, First Amendment, great. But my the question now then is, how are you protecting the targeted students and faculty and staff on mm-hmm. that campus? Mm-hmm. What is your role in that? Right? What degree is it hate speech? And then. Now we have this debate in South Dakota over academic freedom. Right. Right. Which and is that's how it's being couched. Yes, and it's they have one of the things that bothers me about this debate um, in the media, and I used to be in the media, is that it's become like oh, I was triggered by this party at, at USD, right? 
it, it was going to be a Samoan. I don't even remember what it was, yeah. right? Some frat party, and and it was it was you know distastefully themed, right? Mm-hmm. And it's become about that, but that's not what this is about. No, no. I mean, so there was public hearings at SDSU this past spring. Mm-hmm. Um, people need to pay attention to what's going on. I mean, essentially this cookie cutter bill, Mm -hmm. this is again a cookie cutter bill that's going around and it starts in these rural places Mm -hmm. or very conservative, politically conservative Uh, places. What's the the very conservative uh, action committee that brings everybody to Arizona? Uh, Alec. Alec. I used to know all these things. They're just gone. But Alec, I mean, they're an organization that does cookie cutter. Yeah. That's a lot of what ends up in South Dakota. Absolutely. Not necessarily on this issue, but on others. On a lot of issues. Yeah. On a lot of our, what I would call, legislated hateful issues, mm-hmm. right? Right. They're this all cookie Basically cutter. discriminatory issues. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. Yeah, so the, the stuff is showing up on the college campuses. Yep. So we've only tracked one such conversation that was specifically an Islamophobe who came to campus there and did her talk. And then Muslim students were scared to come to campus that day and the day after. And then time passes. This is the thing. Um, nothing happened, right? Well, thank yeah. God nothing. Yeah, I mean, exactly. nothing happened. It gives you some faith but in But now what? Right? Where's the counter to this? If we're talking about freedom of speech and we're on a university campus, which should be in a learning environment, mm-hmm. whose responsibility is, is it to counter these messages? Either way, mm-hmm. right? Either way. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one's stepping up to do that. So we're, we as an organization are figuring out how to work with communities to have counter events. Uh, and we'd like to be on the proactive side of that one day and soon it's coming sooner than later. Mm-hmm. But so far we've had to be reactionary to mm-hmm. those things. So education is the, the meat of what we do. We have actually just hired another immigration attorney and a case manager and we are serving only serving um, South Dakota kids who are in immigration court. And this has been a big piece of community education too is because we have over 500 unaccompanied minors from Central America who live in South mm-hmm. Dakota. Um, since and two, it's growing. It's growing every year. It's very bizarre because North Dakota maybe has 10 really? unaccompanied minors and that's tracked through the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Why? Just farther? I don't know. <laughs> no, Nebraska's got yeah, 2,000, we'll Kansas has We'll 5, just 000. drop them off in yeah. South Dakota. <laughs> I mean, the process is, so these are kids who are traveling from Central America, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, mm-hmm. by themselves, without a parent or guardian. So this is very different than the families who came to the border, mm-hmm. and then because of zero tolerance last summer, were separated from their children. Different population. Mm-hmm. So these kids are coming to the border, and they have been coming over 300,000 since 2013. Um, and if they identify someone they know in the United States after a background check and other things, right. they get shipped to stay with them. Well, all of these kids are in immigration court. None of them speak English. Wow. Immigration court's in Minnesota, right? And so back to my Bush Fellowship, mm-hmm. when I was looking at access to legal services, this is when it first started to surface this issue. I see. But, so you represent those kids who are here, but immigration court is at Fort Snelling. Yep. 
do you have to go up there Sometimes. and do the work? Okay. I mean, my job is to get them out of that court process Got it. and do stuff administratively, which kids have more options for. And the thing that people don't understand, I have some really interesting conversations in the community, just because people don't know the immigration system, right? But these kids, um, they're technically unlawfully here. So we're trying to get them onto a path to citizenship. That's always our goal as an immigration attorney. And these kids have special ways they can get there that adults don't mm -hmm. have, right? So there's a lot of hope in trying to find these kids, get them onto these paths. Well, I was having a really interesting conversation with some leaders in the community about, oh, well, you know, these kids could be our workforce. You know, workforce development, that's a big deal. Um, here in Sioux Falls, I said, actually, we need to hit the pause button because these can't, unless they have some legal documentation, mm -hmm. they can't get a work permit. No. No. So we need to start the conversation a couple of steps back for these particular kids, right? But that, that, but that's because I mean, the business leaders in this community are desperately looking for people. Yeah. As many business leaders across the country are, mm -hmm. at a time when we are, at the same time, living under this rhetoric of anti-immigration. Mm -hmm. Why is that so hard to figure out? Um, the Federal Reserve Chair out of Minneapolis, is it, came to a Rotary meeting, was that last He's year? He's fantastic, can't remember. Yeah. He was on my radio show. Yeah, yeah. He's great. It's math. Yep. It's math. I mean... You can't beat the math. South Dakotans are dying at a higher rate than coming in mm -hmm. or being born. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, oh, you know, and, and, you the know. only way to do the math is if more people come and people from... Minneapolis aren't going to come here, let alone Chicago or wherever else people are supposed to be coming from to South Dakota. With, so, their, with their bachelor's degrees, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Master's degrees. But mostly. I mean, there's been such amazing stories coming out of towns like Worthington mm -hmm. and St. Cloud and all these towns that have been revived because of immigrants yep. and refugees. And so people need to come full circle on that. Don't you think that eventually <laughs> we get there? Like... Isn't the immigration story actually, uh, it's hard, and there's always the It's push, hard because we hate. look different. There's always hate. There's always hate, but there's no point, opportunity for visual assimilation for mm -hmm. people of color who are immigrants and refugees, right? I think from my perspective, in trying to be more of an anti-racist um, advocate, Mm -hmm. um, and a social justice advocate, I see that as the biggest barrier. Um, and we're not Christian, right? Mm -hmm. There's no commonality that there was in the early days of immigration. The Protestants didn't like me. Well, I mean, I know, <laughs> I know there were those divisions, right. but 100 years later, everyone right. was able to kind of gel together. And isn't that the hope that eventually <laughs> yeah. we can gel together, even though... That's you know, a Pollyannish well, view. I, I have a that. real problem with assimilationist um, vocabulary, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't mean that you need to be like me. Well, I but that I accept yeah. that you are you. But I think it's. Um, I've heard a lot of leaders in this community use assimilationist language. Yeah. Well, but we just need to assimilate. Well, honestly, if you look at the history of assimilationism, it doesn't work right? very well. I mean, it's it's tinged with white supremacy. Some would argue, some would argue, it is white supremacy, right? Like, why do we all have to become one? Well, particularly when you apply it to the Native American situation. Absolutely. It's, well, genocide is what that is, but that's a different yeah. story. The I want to turn. I want to yeah. change that just a little bit and come back more locally to mm -hmm. Sioux Falls, right? 
and talk about um, the, the, the sort of state of our leadership in the community right now. And I don't mean to put this right on Paul Tenhaken or anything like that. Uh, Paul Tenhaken, though, is a guy who grew up in Worthington. You mentioned Worthington. Worked with immigrant communities, volunteered or for whatever reason. Um, you know, he, he is not uh, illiterate on the issues. Um, and again, I don't mean to put this just on him, but there because there there's more than one leader of a community. Now that you've been working in the community, you you have a better understanding of it. Um, what is your sense of our immigrant quotient? Quotient. Our, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Give me a give me a grade. Give me some quantification of. Are we making progress? Are we not making progress? Is it a good place to live? Is it a bad place to live? Just give me some hope, Denise. Give me some hope. Oh, Patrick. I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm asking a lot. No, I think the hope... Because I love my community, I want to see you to be a better place, right? And you know what? I have a South Dakota in the family, too. I mean, my four-year-old was born here, and so I guess we're here to stay. <laughs> he has a cowboy hat and his newborn pictures and everything. Oh, but that's this, too much. Don't the, you know? <laughs> The hope for me mm-hmm. is in the trajectory of our work mm-hmm. at Voices for Peace and Voices for Justice. I mean, again, going back to pro bono staff, zero dollars in the budget just two years ago, mm-hmm. right? To four full-time staff, close to a $250,000 budget, having doing the difficult work. And so we're not just about conversation, but we're about action. Right, mm-hmm. and a lot of people told me in the beginning, "This isn't going to work. You should be careful. There's a lot of haters. There's a lot of this. There's a lot of that." But what we have seen in two years that there are more people who are following the lead and and realizing their potential and taking action on these issues than there are the legislators who are winning legislative hate. Mm-hmm. Right, so that's the hope for me um, in terms of where our community is. I think the most prominent leader from my perspective on these issues has been the Sioux Falls Chamber of Commerce, Hmm. um, under Dr. David Kapaska's leadership, who also sits on our advisory council, but he has, he has walked the walk. I mean, I remember being in the Rotary meeting actually, when he introduced, um, the former, CEO, chair, president, I don't know, Jason Ball. Oh, yeah. Um, I was sitting there in the Rotary meeting, and they were talking about their diversity inclusion platform. And my jaw hit the table, right? Well, there was some pushback against it. There was a lot of pushback, and I've heard things. I've heard things about the pushback. but But they keep going. They keep going, and they are front and center at legislative session. Yeah. And, and for me, a lot of, you know, a lot of my friends will be like, oh, it's so annoying. I get really disheartened when it's, when we're just seen as commodities. It's about workforce development. Right. right? And, I, and I say to them, listen, we have the same goal, which is, yeah. which is an inclusive community. And if we need people to talk about law enforcement, to talk about education, to talk about workforce development, and then doing the right thing, we all need to do it together, Mm -hmm. right? And And good jobs are part of the American dream. Yeah, absolutely. You you can't do any of the things that we all want, which is a safe life for our family and and opportunity and uh, our children doing better than we did and all of that. Absolutely. If we don't have a job. Yep. And this in the American economic system, which isn't going to change anytime soon. 
I don't think Bernie's going to win. I'm just going to throw that oh, out there. I mean, I don't, I don't think Bernie. Bernie. I don't think it's going to be Bernie. We call him Uncle Bernie. Oh, well, that's okay. <laughs> um, uh, well, this is probably a good spot to end because we've yeah. been talking for quite a while. Yeah. And you know, here, here, let's just look around. We're here at the uh, Full Circle Book Cop Book Co-op. Your uh, conservative, communist, left-leaning, libertarian bookstore and cafe. <laughs> Very inclusive place, right? Absolutely. We're here, right? That's that's right. We're here. And uh, there are places in this community where all are welcome. And I think that probably all are welcome in this community other than from a few people. I agree. That's, that's where I'm trying to get to. I'm trying to stay hopeful because I think that's that is the only way that a place like Sioux Falls is going to continue to grow and thrive and be a good place to live is if we can do those things. Can I end yeah. on a hopeful note? Yes, please. So since I'm a hopeful guy. Two, since 2017, mm-hmm. the, the movement for inclusivity in our state has been um, on the backs of small nonprofit organizations like Voices for Peace, mm-hmm. like Lead South Dakota, mm-hmm. like the Transformation Project, right? When we, when I went to Transformation South Dakota's gala and South Dakota leads gala, mm-hmm. um, it was a sense that there's more of us. We just need to be engaged in voting and politics and all of that. Similarly, our gala sold out. Yes, at two hundred, yeah, at two hundred and fifty people, and to be in that room in that moment mm-hmm. and be like, we're all in it together, and mm-hmm. there is more of us. We just need to channel our energy more strategically. Yeah. But I would say inclusivity, yes, the chamber is leading, um, is going to happen grassroots and top down, and I think our model. Um, understands that. That's why we are fighting legislated hate and also working to empower our communities through civic engagement. Tanise Islam, she is executive director of the South Dakota Voices for Peace. And uh, you know, we could we could talk all night, <laughs> but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go. But you gotta sure. you gotta come back sometime. There'll Absolutely, be stuff. Anytime. There'll be stuff. So much to talk about. I know. It's just part of the conversation. Yeah. Thank you for being here and thank you for being here in the studio. <laughs> And thank you to the Full Circle Book Co-op, your conservative, communist, left-leaning, libertarian bookstore and cafe at 123 West 10th Street in beautiful downtown Sioux Falls, the best little city in America. I'm going to let Rich Show take you good people out, and we will be back next week. Thanks a lot. what I need to have To have the show
Just like that. 